0: So listen, it gives me massive privilege to welcome in just a moment Carl to come and join us. Carl Johnson is the senior pastor of uh, Letchworth Garden City Church. Um, If you ever get fed up with this church, then go there because it's a brilliant, brilliant church. Uh, You're not allowed to go anywhere else, but you can definitely go to LGCC. It's such a fantastic church, and uh, he is such a great guy, such a great leader, and we've become good friends over the last, how long have you been here? Yeah, four years or so, and uh, we're doing a little bit of a pulpit swap. I had the privilege of speaking at LGCC uh, just a couple of months ago, and so he's come today. So I want you to give it just a massive Zio welcome to the brilliant Carl. Come up, Carl, go for it. <laughs> brilliant. Good morning. Thanks, Matt, for that that welcome. And uh, yeah, just a real privilege to be here. And like Matt said, we had the honour of having Matt with us just about a month ago. I think Matt was with us and just had a great uh, great morning together. And uh, it's my turn. And uh, just a real joy to come. We love Matt. We love Zio Church. We hear lots about you and what you're doing for God's kingdom. And um, you know, we're one church, aren't we? We we have different expressions and flavours and all those things. But we're we're one church. And I just love the way that I think that God. God joins hearts of leaders, and uh, you know we need to pray for that, right? That God will join the hearts of leaders together, because actually Jesus prayed for unity, uh, and if, if probably the one prayer he prayed, he didn't really see the f- the fruition of that. But we continue to pray for unity, like we pray for unity in our nation. We pray for it through our local churches, and uh, just really appreciate the relationship uh, we have with Matt and uh, and the church here, and uh, and all God's doing Amen. with that. I want to look at an extraordinary story uh, with you. Does anybody else find the Bible extraordinary? Uh, I, I read it and I've read it for many, many years and find myself reading again similar story, stories that I've read before, but finding just new extraordinary things in there that God wants to reveal to me. You know, you can read a portion of the scripture in one season and you read it in another season and it just pulls something new out for you. Anybody find that? And just I think it's just the extraordinary way the Holy Spirit works and moves in our lives. And we'll look at an extraordinary story with you. In, uh, in John chapter 8. So if you've got your Bibles, uh, you can head to John chapter 8. And I've called this morning, um, Graffiti and Grace. Graffiti and grace. You can't help but notice uh, these days that wherever you go, uh, there is graffiti. Right? Uh, you kind of just—it's like a mo- part of modern society today that graffiti uh, just seems to be um, everywhere. You go through, in fact, even on the way here today, you um, kind of go underneath, drive underneath the, the railway stations, and you see graffiti. You walk through alleyways and, and all sorts of kind of around community centres, you see graffiti. It just seems to be everywhere around us. In fact, um, research shows that uh, graffiti costs the UK economy over a billion pounds uh, in graffiti. That's a big problem, isn't it? Over a billion pounds just to sort graffiti. In London alone, it was 100 million pounds uh, just to sort out, um, sort out the kind of graffiti problem. However, I found that if you really want to see graffiti in all of its glory, and graffiti at its absolute artistry, artistry best, you, there, is the, there is one good place to really find good, good graffiti, and that's a public toilet. Like, like, a public toilet is where you see graffiti at its absolute finest. And uh, don't worry, I've censored this slightly, but I want to show you uh, some graffiti uh, that I found, that we've seen in uh, public toilets. I wonder if you stick the first one up on the screen for me. It says, I love your Crocs, said nobody. I think that's a true statement wherever it's written. Uh, the second one is, this is my personal favorite. One out of five, I would not pee here again. I think that was my personal favorite, uh, for their recommendation or lack of recommendation. Uh, and then the third and final one, it says, things I hate. Number one, vandalism. Uh, number two, lists. Number three, irony. Uh, number four, lists again. And then five, repetition. And then the final one there is inconsistency. Uh, you know, whatever your... Whatever your thoughts, whatever your views on uh, graffiti, whether you admire it for its fine handiwork that it, that it can be, or vandalism, or just good artistry, in many ways it doesn't really matter. Um, but actually what we see is on three different occasions in Scripture, we see God's graffiti. We see a moment in history where God steps in and he brings a message in the form of graffiti, not quite as we would know it today but very much in the graffiti that we see in Scripture. The first one we see is in Exodus chapter 31, where God is speaking to Moses, and to the, just not just to Moses, but the Israelites, the people of Israel. And he says these words to him. He says, When the Lord finished speaking to Moses on Mount Sinai, he gave him two tablets of the covenant of the Lord, the tablets of stone, and there it is, inscribed by the finger of So the first occasion of graffiti is we see this moment where God gives the law to Moses and to the people of Israel. The the second um, instance we see is that I have to kind of just set the scene for this a little bit, because what you have in Daniel chapter 5 is a pagan king. And this pagan king, he he throws a banquet, if you like. and, and, And in the middle of this banquet, when all of his guests have gathered, he does something that I wouldn't really recommend. He begins to mock God. And he has this banquet and as the crowd is there, he begins to mock God in this banquet and suddenly something happens and it says the fingers of a human hand appeared on, wrote on the plaster of the wall. Now, I've been to some parties. I, I've never been to a party where suddenly the finger be of somebody, be give a human hand, begins to write on the wall. Has anybody else been to those kind of parties? If you find yourself in one of them, I suggest you get out very quickly. But it says here, and it says, Near the lampstand in the royal palace, the king washed as the hand wrote. In fact, it's hilarious. As you read that on in that book of Daniel 5, it says that the king's knees knocked together. I mean, well, they would, wouldn't they? I mean, my knees would be knocking at that point. And so here we see this message where, effectively, God brings a judgment against this king. And then we see the third instance. And the third instance is a story that I really want us to dive into and pull out something of what I believe God wants to share with us um, this morning. And it's in John chapter 8. And here is a message where Jesus, he writes, he graffitis into the dust of the ground. And he begins to speak a message, a profound message of grace, not just into the life of one individual, but into a group, a collective group who gather together. And so we pick up this story Really at the back end of John chapter 7 because there's just a verse there where it begins. And if you've got your Bibles open or your iPads on, you'll see straight away something that's different to the rest of Scripture or the rest of the book. And what you see is a, a moment when um, you see here that oh, the, the Scripture is in italics. The text is in italics, and the earliest manuscripts of the Bible didn't have this story in here. It wasn't a story that was in the very first manuscripts of the Bible, but it seems to have been added later, and theologians, scholars, basically people far more intelligent than me, far smarter than me, they began to look at this story, and it recognized that it had the hallmarks of, one of, the, of, a, of something that actually happened. It was a real story, a real event that happened, but was later added to Scripture. All sorts of historical evidence that this story, this actual event happened. And when they began to look at who was the author of it, they said it was most likely to be John because it echoed the characteristics, the themes that John would speak about in the rest of his book. And so while there is debate around who wrote it, the, most scholars, they would say that the John who wrote this gospel wrote this story. And so we pick up this story here in verse 53 of chapter 7. And it says, then they all went home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, verse 2, At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. Let me just pause there for a moment. What precludes this story is a festival, it's a gathering of people that was very common in this time. It was a festival called the Feast of Tabernacles. It sounds exciting, right? Any partygoers in the room, like that's the feast to go to, is the Feast of Tabernacles. And so the, all of kind of these people, they gather in Jerusalem for this well-known, this traditional feast. And it's come to the end of the feast, and all the people are going home except Jesus. And it says there in verse 1 that Jesus goes to the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives was a significant place for Jesus. It was a, it was a go-to place for Jesus. When he was in Jerusalem, he would go to the Mount of Olives. What was significant about the Mount of Olives? The Garden of Gethsemane was in the Mount of Olives. And so Jesus would retreat there to pray. In fact, if you fast forward through John's Gospel, you'll get to a moment where Judas is about to betray Jesus, and it says that Judas knew where to find Jesus. It was at the Garden of Gethsemane. And so this was a popular place for Jesus to go to. He would go there. He would retreat from the crowd. He lived much of his life in public um, public kind of squares and ministry. But this was a moment when he retreated. But he retreated because the next morning he had an appointment. He had a meeting at the temple courts. And so he, he, the next day he goes to the temple courts. And the Bible says that he began to teach the people. It was common for a rabbi to sit and teach. In fact, um, the fact that Jesus sat is not, a, is not just a lost piece of information for us because rabbis would regularly sit down to teach. In fact, when they sit down, there would be a seat, a stool if you like, and when they sit on that, it was known as the seat of Moses. It was a place of significance, of influence. You, you knew that the rabbi was about to teach because he would sit on the seat of Moses. But you see, a crowd gathered, not because a rabbi was about to teach. Although Jesus was a rabbi, there were many rabbis. The crowd was growing because this was Jesus and his reputation was growing. There was an intrigue. There was an interest in this guy, this man who was not just a rabbi, but this guy who called himself Jesus and who proclaimed to be the Messiah. And he didn't just talk about being the Messiah. He backed it up with demonstration. And there was a momentum and there was a message that they liked. And what they heard from this Jesus. And so the crowd begins to gather out of a place of intrigue. I don't know what brought you to church this morning, to Zio Church. I don't, you, maybe this is your home. This is where you regularly gather. Maybe you're here as a visitor, as a guest. Whatever you're here for, I pray that you never lose the intrigue of Jesus. I pray that Jesus and the Word of God would always draw you to know more about who he is. That we would not just get used to singing songs about Jesus, praying to Jesus, but in all those things that we would grow in our love and our admiration for who he is and what he brings into our lives. There was an intrigue about Jesus. The crowd began to gather. Verse 3, it says, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, a group of people who as we read the Bible, become very familiar to us. They, If you like, they're the interpreters. They're the keepers of the law. They're the ones who set the standards and want to, even though they don't hold it themselves, and we see that through Scripture, they hypocritically begin to uphold it for many other people. And if I'm honest, they they don't really like this message that Jesus carries. Because he, he, Jesus, the way he he interprets scripture and the way that he interprets the law is not the way that they've upheld. It's not the way that they interpret. And so they don't like the way that Jesus, this rabbi, is going about his message. But they also don't like the crowd he's beginning to attract. Because it's not the people that they want to associate with. And so there's there's a a thing here where Jesus is repelling the Pharisees, the teachers of law. And they're equally repelled by Jesus. And what we're about to see is a moment here in verse 6. We're about to see a moment in this story where these teachers, these Pharisees, are about to set a trap for Jesus. And so we carry on the story in verse 3. It says, Teachers of the law, the Pharisees, they brought in a woman caught in adultery. Listen to this. They made her stand before the group. Imagine that moment with me. Imagine a moment when Jesus, he sits down to preach and He's getting into full flow and suddenly there's a disturbance. Suddenly there's a moment when somebody else becomes the center of attention. This sermon has just suddenly taken a tour, a detour away from perhaps what the crowd thought it was going to be. The crowd suddenly are interested, they're intrigued, they're awake. If they're prone to sleeping through a sermon, they're awake now because suddenly something different has begun to happen. Suddenly something is happening in this moment. And the, the woman, she, we, we can assume that she's not looking her best. She's, she's not just being accused of adultery. She was caught in the act of adultery. She's not looking her best. She'd be disheveled at best, half-dressed, in, embarrassed, ashamed, because suddenly now everyone, this crowd, knows her community is aware. She'd be humiliated and afraid. In verse 4 it goes on it says teacher this woman was caught in the act of adultery in the law excuse me in the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women and here it is it says now what do you say and they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him so we have a moment here where Jesus he's he's caught in the spot He's put on the spot and they're wanting an answer from him. They're fully interested because the crowd are leaning in in this moment. They're fully interested in what's happening because this woman is there and they're asking Jesus about what would he do with this woman as she's there. The center of attention as every eye and every thought is on this poor woman. And so Jesus finds himself between what you like, a rock, and a hard place. And, and, and allow me, if I can, just to explain this just a little bit further, because it, according to the law of Moses, there were three sins that deserved death. There was idolatry, murder, and adultery. Three sins that, according to the law of Moses, you didn't need to think about a response. The response was automatic, death. And so they're asking Jesus this question, what would you do knowing the law? And so in many ways, the answer that Jesus should give is clear. Well, this woman deserves death. Yet under the Roman rule, which is what they were occupied under, no one, no one was allowed to sentence somebody else to death except the Roman rulers. So Jesus finds himself in a trap. A trap that's beautifully set by the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And they're saying, what would you do, Jesus? And here's the trap. Because if Jesus says, stone the woman, according to the law of Moses, they would report him to the Roman rulers as a revolutionary who just does everything he wants to do whenever he wants to. Yet... If he doesn't stone the woman, they would accuse him and say, How can you be a rabbi who chooses to uphold the law of Moses, yet you won't even follow the law of Moses? And so they want to discredit him as a rabbi, but they also want to discredit him as the Messiah. And so they catch Jesus in this moment. They only have two goals with this this scene. One is to humiliate the woman. This account has no, this trap has no hold, no merit, no value for this woman. They want to humiliate her. And the second thing they want to do is discredit Jesus. It was a test. And what Jesus does next has everyone interested. And it goes on in verse 6 and it says, But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. We don't know really what Jesus wrote in this moment. There are a few different um, um, suggestions about what Jesus did. One is that he just disengaged in the moment. <laughs> Anybody have any friends like that? Maybe you're married to someone, like you're nudging the person next to you, and you're just saying like, they just like, love to disengage. It doesn't matter what you're talking about. They either change the subject or just ignore you altogether, you know, move things on quickly. You something that Jesus just disengaged. I don't think he disengaged. For one reason, he continued to converse with the crowd and with the teachers and the Pharisees. Another suggestion is that Jesus just got bored and started to doodle. Any doodlers in the room? Some of you are doodling right now, aren't you? He's like, I wish this guy would shut up. You know, Like, like some say, Jesus just began to, to doodle. I, again, I don't think Jesus doodled for one simple reason. We know about Jesus that he always did his father's business. The father's business was always with purpose. Jesus didn't do anything just to occupy time or to do anything. He always did something with a sense of purpose. In fact, I want to suggest to you that in this moment, Jesus did something so significant, so significant that it impacted not just those who accused this woman, but it impacted every onlooker, every crowd member, every person that was just observing this moment. You see, in this text, it's interesting because John, the writer, he uses a Greek word called grapho. And this word grapho means to write down, but you see, Jesus intensifies the situation. Because before he, he uses this word grapho, there's a preposition to Jesus in his write, in, in John's writing, sorry, and John uses this word and he says catographo. Now there's only one other time in the Old Testament when we see this phrase catographo written down, and it's in the book of Job. And in the book of Job it says these words. It says, For you write down bitter things against me. And so here John uses this word catographo to write down bitter things against someone else. And so Jesus is writing in the dust and he's as they accuse and after they accuse this woman it goes on and it says and when they kept on questioning him he straightened up and he said to them let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And again He stooped down and he wrote on the ground. What is Jesus writing in this moment? Because he's suddenly holding the attention of everyone in this moment. And he says to them, if you without sin, if you without sin, you be the first to cast the stone. And potentially in this moment, Jesus is writing down each of their sins. Because you see, the thing we know about Jesus is that he knows all the human heart. He knows every thought, he knows every activity, he knows every temptation, every addiction, every failure, every moment when we've won, every moment when we've lost. Jesus knows all those moments and as he looks eyeball to eyeball into not just those who accuse uh, this woman, as he looks into the eyes of the crowd and he sees them knowing everything about their heart, he steps down into the dust and he begins to write. And I wonder in this moment if he begins to write things like liar, cheat, adulterer, and I can keep going because uh, all of us in this room, there are moments when we've struggled with these things, and I can keep the list going until I hit something that you struggle with, like lust, like theft, and Jesus begins to write, and he begins to graffiti in the dust, and what happens next is so profound that it moves us to respond to this story, because in verse 9, it says this, it says, at this, in fact, other translations say, at once. Without even thinking, at once, those who heard began to go away, one at a time. The older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. One by one, they begin to disperse. The crowd, with the older ones first, they begin to leave the scene recognizing their own issues, recognizing their own struggle, recognizing their their own kind of rhythm where they feel like they fail over and over again, giving in to the same sin, the same temptation, the same thing that they have all the time. And you see this teaching here, this moment here, this significant moment is so reminiscent of the message of Jesus on the mount in Matthew 7 when he speaks to the crowd and he says, take the log out of your own eye before addressing the speck in someone else's. Jesus is consistent in the message that he begins to put on to this crowd and this people. And so we each leave and we're left with two people. We're left with two people. Two very different people. And in fact, it's not just their gender that separates them, that differentiates them. Because what we have is Jesus. The Bible says he is without sin, fully righteous. Yet we have this woman Caught in the act of adultery, unrighteous, unclean, guilty of sin, guilty of something according to the law of Moses, was punishable only by death. And we're left with these two people. We reach the point in the story where the only one left is the only one who's able to judge her. And so it goes on. And Jesus straightened up in verse 10 in the her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And then we look at this grace, this broken and shamed woman as she lies there in the dusk in probably what is the darkest moment of her life. And Jesus speaks into her in verse 11. And he says, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she replies, no one, sir. And then Jesus looks eyeball to eyeball with this broken humiliated, shameful woman, and I believe he speaks the most grace-filled, loved words, loved-filled words in history, and he says to her, then neither do I condemn you. Then neither do I condemn you. Some of us, we've walked into this room today. I don't know hardly any of you, maybe one or two of you. I don't know your stories, but... I know enough of humanity and I know enough of the things that we struggle with over and over again. And we've walked into this room today and if we're honest and hand on heart, we walk in with some darkness in our heart. We walk in and perhaps we feel trapped. We feel trapped in the sense that we just keep falling foul to the same temptation over and over again. Perhaps you're here today and you feel trapped and you're trapped in an addictive behavior that you just can't quite seem to break out of. Maybe you're here and you feel like you're trapped in in failure. There's just an overwhelming sense of failure. and It doesn't matter who you talk to, what you do. You just can't seem to break out of this sense of failure that just seems to close in over you. You're carrying darkness. You're carrying shame, agony. In fact, I believe every human heart carries some pain. And I believe that the work of Christ in us begins to allow us, as we look out to others, to see the pain that's gripped human hearts. And we have the awesome opportunity as followers of Jesus to speak grace and to speak love, and to speak hope, and joy into every single human heart. And church, I want to say to you today that if you are in Christ Jesus, you need to know that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And just as Jesus, 2,000 years ago, spoke to this woman and said, neither do I condemn you, I believe he speaks over your life today, and he says to you that neither do I condemn you, whatever your addiction whatever your failure, whatever your shame, whatever your heart, whatever your agony, the words and the grace of Jesus today is, neither do I condemn you. Bible says that where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. There is a liberty that comes. And today he wants to breathe his grace into your life. And you see, when we talk around Every giant must fall when we talk around um, temptation and overcoming temptation and failure and shame, and amongst many other things that seem to cripple our lives. We need to remember the place we need to start is always with the grace and the forgiveness of the Lord Jesus Christ. We start there, it starts with His grace, it starts with His love, and it starts with Him. You see, was this woman guilty? Yes, she was guilty, she was caught did she deserve punishment most probably did she receive it no why and this is the good news that i believe i want to just share with you today the love of jesus reveals the grace of god the love of jesus the heart of jesus reveals the grace of god she didn't deserve judgment but he didn't she deserved judgment but he didn't give it she didn't deserve grace but he gave it and you may be here today and you're guilty, hand on heart, you're guilty. Guilty of many things, guilty of doing something unto others or being the recipient of some things, whatever it may be, guilty of falling into the same temptation again and again, guilty of similar things to perhaps those that the crowd were also guilty of, they accused this woman. Yet in this moment, the love of Jesus revealed the grace of God. And church, I've discovered something about the law, this law that the Pharisees, this law that the the teachers of the law wanted to uphold. You see, the law will only do one thing. The law will only reveal your guilt. But the love of Jesus will always reveal his grace. The law, the law which Jesus set us free from, does only one thing, and that reveals your guilt. But you see, Jesus doesn't want you trapped in guilt. He doesn't want you trapped in shame. He wants you free and living in the grace and the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. My time's gone. I wonder if you would stand with me right where you are. Maybe the worship team could come and join me. As you're standing, I want to just show you one more thing from this story as we conclude it. You see, it says here in this moment when Jesus says to her that neither do I condemn you, he goes on and it says, go now, go now and leave your life of sin. Go now and leave your life of sin. He doesn't say go tomorrow. He doesn't say go later. He says go now and leave your life of sin. There's a sense of urgency here that Jesus wants to communicate to this woman, that this is a moment. This is a moment you cannot ignore. This is a moment when I am here. This is a moment of encounter with Jesus. And he says to her, go now and leave your life of sin. I wonder right where you are if you just close your eyes with me. Closing your eyes is not a spiritual act. It's a privacy thing. It's a personal thing. Jesus speaks to you as much with your eyes open as he does with your eyes closed. But now I just ask you to close your eyes just as a personal moment. I wonder what your darkness is that you struggle with right now. Maybe you're locked into a world of darkness, you're worked into a world of addiction, addictive behavior, addiction. You're locked into a world where you just feel like you fail over and over again. Whatever it is, you're locked into that sense of condemnation. I want to say to you today that Jesus doesn't want you to live there anymore. Just like he didn't want this woman to live in a world locked in adultery. He doesn't want you to be locked in whatever you're locked into right now. And he wants to, right now, he wants to just breathe his grace. He wants to just release his love because his love reveals his grace. And So perhaps right now, just as I draw to a close, if you're comfortable, and perhaps you just sense the Lord speaking to you about something in particular, just as a way of honoring that, would you just lift your hands before the Lord? Just right where you are. It's just a personal moment between you and him. It's not about the person next to you. It's not about your age. It's not about your gender. It's about you and the Lord. So just right where you are, just lift your hands to him. And just as you have a moment of communing with the Holy Spirit and allowing him to speak to you, let me just talk to another group of people for just 30 seconds. If you're here today and you've never made a decision to follow Jesus, you've sung songs about him, you've heard about him, Maybe at times you've even prayed to Him, but you've never made a decision to follow Jesus. I want to give you an opportunity right here, right now, to say, Carl, today, on this day, the 29th of October, it's going to be a day where I encounter Jesus, a day where I want to know more about Him. Because I've done some things. I've been a part of some things. I've had some things done to me that I think Jesus might just want to set me free from if that's you it begins with following Jesus it begins with making a mark a moment where you say I want to follow him I want to know his love I want to know his grace and I'm sure there'll be some people that want to talk to you afterwards if that's you today with every head bowed eye closed would you just slip your hand in the air and just hold it there for a couple of seconds and then take it down again say Carl that's me I want to make that decision today thank you is there anyone else? See, the Bible says that when one person makes a decision, it says that all of heaven rejoices. Is there anyone else today? Says, Carl, I want to make that decision. I'm going to pray for our dear friend in just a moment before I pray for the rest of us. Is there anyone else? So, Father, I want to thank you for my dear friend. I thank you, Jesus, that you really lived, you really died and you really rose again just for her as you did for everybody else and I pray Lord that she would know the love of Jesus right now in this moment she would know your heart for her is good and it's kind she would know the forgiveness of her sin, that she would know a moment she's released from the things that hold her she begins to walk this beautiful walk with Jesus and now Christians let me just pray for you Everyone who has their hands raised before the Lord. Father, I thank you that your goal and that your heart is not to keep us trapped in failure, in shame, and in darkness, but it's to breathe freedom and liberty over those things. And right now, Lord, for every life, for every heart that feels like it's trapped in addictive behavior, trapped in failure, trapped in just seem to be tripping over the same thing again and again, trapped in shame and all those things. Father, right now, we just release your Holy Spirit. We say, come by the power of your Holy Spirit. And would you just begin to set hearts and lives free in Jesus' name. And just like you spoke over this woman and you said to her, neither do I condemn you. I pray, Lord, that right now every heart and every life would know that same affirmation same word, those same grace-filled, love-filled words that say, and neither do I condemn you. Be free in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. God bless you.